that we're never completely safe. There's no way for any of us to, to so cushion ourselves that we're free from every possible threat, internally or externally. Now, of course, we should still be wise in how we live. We don't stare into the sun. We don't eat raw chicken and so forth. But y'all, in in the grand scheme of things, and as people of faith, we can say this with great sincerity. In the grand scheme, we're only truly secure if we rest in the hand of Almighty God. No matter what other cushions we surround ourselves with, the God who made everything, the heavens and the earth, the God who holds all things together, God who directs our path, God who gives us life and breath and all good things. Any real security, any lasting security that you and I enjoy comes because God is gracious to us, no matter what else befalls us. And y'all, this is a point that I think becomes very emphatic for us today in Exodus chapters 11 and 12. See, up to this point, uh, from our perception, at least, it might seem like we're looking at two different stories to this point in Exodus. We've got the first story, which appears to be the dominant story of the powerful and cruel Egyptians led by the evil Pharaoh who have enslaved the Israelites. They've treated God's people as subhuman now for over 400 years. They've murdered their children without remorse. That would appear to be the dominant story. What possible power could overwhelm the Egyptians? But then there's a second story, which is really not a different story. It's the truer story, the greater story that overtakes the first. It's the story of God who promised to rescue his people, Israel, and now he lays his hand of judgment upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And whatever power Pharaoh assumed for himself has been dramatically overturned by the one true God who devastates Egypt with the plagues that we read about last week, the first nine plagues from chapter 7 through 10. Well, now comes the final plague, the decisive judgment that God has been promising from the start. So back in Exodus 4, by way of reminder, before Moses ever came to Egypt, here's what the Lord said to him. Chapter 4, verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now, the the nine plagues we, we saw last week did not result in Israel's freedom. But this one will. And so what we see in terms of safety and security, uh, the Lord flips the script on us here. It's the Egyptians who are the greatest superpower in the world, the Egyptians who have all the wealth and all uh, all the, the learning. They've got all the military might. Everything is working in their favor. And yet they are not safe at all under the righteous judgment of God. Whereas the Israelites who are very weak and crushed and oppressed and impoverished, nothing can touch them because they are in the hand of God's mercy. And so we're going to look today at chapter 11 and chapter 12. Let's read the entire chapter 11 together. It's only 10 verses, but it's going to give us a fuller scope of what's happening here. Exodus 11, verses 1 through 10. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. 
When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Now, this is something I mentioned last week, maybe even truer this week. Scriptures like this one are meant to unsettle us. Any notion we have of a God who is flimsy and toothless must be put away. The Lord is over all the earth. All things and all people belong to him and fall under his divine authority. And the scripture tells us time and again that all of God's ways are just and right. God's not just in charge because he made the whole thing. He's not just in charge by default somehow. He truly is righteous and perfect. He is the only one qualified to be a just and faithful judge, to discern good from evil, to give reward and penalty. And so what we understand about God, and it's so central here, God never acts out of accord with his perfect righteousness. He never does evil in God. Is, uh, God is light, the scripture says, and in him there is no darkness at all. So on one hand, when we read of God's plan to kill all the firstborn in Egypt, we must recognize this as God's authority and wisdom and justice on display. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't tremble at the thought of it. That doesn't mean it shouldn't cause us uh, to, to, to wilt, in a sense. It's scary. Y'all, whenever, whenever the Bible speaks of God's judgment upon sin, whether the Old Testament or the New, there is always a sense of terror that accompanies it. Not because God is in any way bad or capricious, but because God is truly holy and sin is truly evil. And the darkness of sin cannot stand in the pure and bright light of holiness. 
And so we, we, we wilt under that light, in a sense, as we should. Y'all, in Hebrews chapter 10, we're told that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, which means to those who resist the Lord, to those who rebel against God, to those who harden themselves in sin, who perpetrate evil as the Egyptians have, there is no soft landing. There is no letting bygones be bygones. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So this is an instance where we should be grateful that there is such a God who is just and holy and righteous. Who could possibly govern the chaos and evil within the world unless there is such a God? We should be glad he's righteous. And yet at the same time, in the face of such righteousness, we put our hands over our mouths and we tremble at the thought of such a holy God. Scriptures like this force us to reckon with him because we're sinners too. And so in chapter 11, Egypt is confronted with this very fact. I mentioned this already, that for all of their wealth and power and prestige and military might, they are not at all safe from the judgment of God. While at the same time, Israel, for all their weakness, for all their poverty, they couldn't be any safer or more secure. Notice what the Lord says. We just read this a minute ago. Verse 7 again in chapter 11. But against any of the sons of Israel, God says, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Egypt is about to face the full force of God's judgment, while Israel won't even be barked at. And this is the Lord's doing. This is God making the distinction here between judgment and mercy. Now, two really significant questions, I think, come out of this. Very simple questions. It's the how and the why. How is God going to make such a distinction? And why will he do it? And maybe those, those answers are not quite as easy as we would assume. How is God going to distinguish between judgment and mercy, between Egypt and Israel, and why? The how comes in chapter 12 as God unfolds what he calls the Passover. Okay? The command of the Lord goes out to Israel in chapter 12. Take for each a household, take for each household one unblemished lamb, a perfect lamb. And then in verse 6, here's what the Lord says, chapter 12, verse 6. You shall keep the lamb until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And if we read through chapter 12, we get some very specific instruction from God on how they are to eat the lamb with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs. It must be roasted rather than boiled. God is very specific on how he wants that lamb prepared and consumed. And the Lord says that everyone in Israel is to eat the lamb fully clothed. Not like they would on a normal dinner time uh, evening when all the doors are shut and the family is in for the night. There's no relaxation here. 
shoes on your feet, your traveling clothes on, staff in your hand. The Lord says, eat in haste, as if you would get up and, and move out of your homes at any moment. Do this quickly, God says. Now, none of this, in Bible terms at least, maybe seems very strange to us, except for one very important detail. We see it in, in verse 7 of chapter 12. The Lord says that they take some of the lamb's blood and smear it on the doorposts of their homes. The two door frames and the lintel. Put the blood there. Now that seems to be a very strange practice. This is, by my reckoning, something that God has never commanded before. This is new. But the, the Lord explains it in verse 12 there. If you look down with me. He says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Lord will go through the land to strike down all the firstborn of Egypt, but not of Israel. And what will make the distinction? This is the how. How will God make the distinction? The blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And God says it very explicitly. This is the sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and you will live. This is how God's going to distinguish them. Now that brings up a sub-question right here. Again, very important. Why does God need the blood to make a distinction? If you were with us last week, if you've ever looked through the other nine plagues in Exodus, the Lord has already been making distinctions between Israel and Egypt. The flies, the boils, the pestilence, those plagues came upon the Egyptians while the Israelites were entirely safe. They were spared. None of those plagues befell God's people. And in those cases, God's people did nothing. They, they didn't perform any kind of ritual. They didn't pray a special prayer. God simply distinguished between the two and kept his people from harm. So why should this final plague be any different? Certainly God knows everything. God knows who's in every home. He can distinguish between his people and their enemies. So what's different here? Y'all, I hope that to this point, it's clear for us that this final judgment really is unique. The Lord will make a careful distinction, yes, but by means of a sacrifice and by means of faith. Think about what's happening here with the lamb. The lamb is not serving primarily as a meal, but as a sacrifice signified by the blood that spread over the door. And the people of God are being distinguished here, but not primarily by nationality. They're being distinguished by faith. Those who trust in God and accept His provision of the Lamb, of the blood, those are the people that will be spared. Not just because they are Hebrews, but because they shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And so there's an enormous implication in this final judgment that we cannot miss. Ask yourselves this question. 
What would happen if a Hebrew family decided to just take their chances and forsake God's command concerning the lamb and the blood? What would happen to them in that case? I think the implication is very clear. They would suffer the very same fate as their Egyptian neighbors. They would face God's judgment. And if we ask why that is, it's because God, y'all, God is coming down to execute judgment for sin. And the Israelites are sinners too. If they were to face the full force of God's justice on their own merits, they would be destroyed. They would have no chance. They would end up the same as the Egyptians. And it's good for us maybe to revisit the greater themes happening here in Exodus. Y'all, the story of Exodus to this point and beyond, it's not a story about the evil Egyptians and the sweet, good, and righteous Israelites. Those wonderful Israelites who never did nothing wrong, and yet they ended up in this terrible position. Y'all, that's not what this book is. And we'll see it as we walk through the Exodus. The, the Israelites are terribly sinful and rebellious, and quick to forget God, and even worship idols. It's, it's, it's astounding to see it play itself out. The Israelites are not righteous, and God here is rewarding them for their goodness while he punishes the bad guys. That's not the story. God is not rewarding the Israelites. He is redeeming them. And so here in the Passover... A very clear message is being sent. The lamb is your substitute. A substitute that you require. Your sin demands judgment, but God in his mercy provides and accepts a sacrifice in your place that every Israelite needed to be saved. Now, I hope what I just said sounds like an echo, maybe, for us. Because what we're communicating here in Exodus is the very central message of our own faith. I'll say it again. The message to Israel here implicitly is, your sin demands judgment also, but God in his mercy provides and accepts a sacrifice in your place. That's the message of our faith. And so, y'all, just for the sake of of a little fun this morning, let's fast forward in time. We can do that, not for ourselves, but we can do it when we read the Bible. We can, go, we can go forward about 1,300 years from the Exodus, in fact, to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Think about when Jesus first comes on the scene in the book of John. There was a man named John the Baptist whom God sent to prepare Israel for the arrival of God's anointed one, the Messiah. John is pointing people to the Messiah, God's promised deliverer. And in John chapter 1, when he sees Jesus coming his way, John declares with a loud voice, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John introduces Jesus to the world as God's Lamb. The apostle Peter elaborates on this very same idea as he writes to Christians, to the church, In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter speaks to us. He says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, 
but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter tells us that Jesus is the perfect lamb who shed his own blood for our redemption. The Apostle Paul makes it more explicit perhaps than anybody else. The connection is clear in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. The Scripture tells us that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. What Exodus is pointing to is something beyond itself. It's pointing us to Christ, the Passover lamb, who in his death and through his shed blood rescues us from the penalty of our sin. The connection is is very clear and purposeful for us. Jesus is the one who in the shedding of blood, because we shelter ourselves under him, as it were, we find mercy and salvation. But y'all, as strong and as precious as that connection is, the Bible actually pushes us even further. So, So think now again, back to Exodus 12, think about these Israelites. They're not perhaps entirely sure why they are putting the lamb's blood above the doorposts. But they're sheltering themselves under the blood all the same because God said so. And therefore they are safe from destruction because God takes account of the sign, the sign of his provision and the sign of their faith. So what does the Lord do? He passes over them in his mercy. He accepts the sacrifice and he withholds judgment. But one thing that lamb could not and did not do. The lamb did not take away their sin. The sins of Israel remained on them and in them. God in his mercy passes over them. But if we continue to read through Exodus and Leviticus, because the people are so uh, corrupt and sinful, there are a great many more sacrifices to come. There's an entire sacrificial system that God institutes because the sins of Israel run so deep and so wide, they are in constant need of atonement. What happens in in the first Passover is not a once and for all atonement. It's simply one that grants them mercy in that moment that they might be delivered. And I want us to know that we're not different than the Israelites. That for us, our sin runs deep. Our sin runs wide, and there is no single sacrifice that we produce with our own hands. There's no ongoing sacrifice that we could produce that would truly atone for the depth of our sin. And this is where Jesus truly stands alone. He is likened to the lamb in some ways, but he surpasses the lamb. Y'all, in the book of Hebrews, we're told it's impossible for the blood of an animal sacrifice to take away sin. But Jesus, through the shedding of his own blood, has obtained for us eternal redemption. This carries us back to what John said. Remember, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't simply grant us a Passover, a do-over. That would do us no good. Our sin would still remain. Only if Jesus Christ comes to take our sin away do we have any real and lasting hope. And so here is the gospel message. 
for all who trust in the Lord Jesus, our sin no longer remains. We are forgiven entirely and we are made righteous eternally. Because in Christ, God has not passed over our sin. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He paid the penalty for us. Jesus has suffered condemnation and destruction in our place. And now by faith in him, we are redeemed forever. Jesus is the true Passover for us in a way that the lamb in Exodus 12 could only faintly symbolize. Our sin has been removed. The scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. And that is true because of Jesus. And so in Exodus 12, if you're there in, in verse 29, we won't put this on the, on the screen, but you can read this on your own. There at midnight, on the 14th of the month, the Lord brings to fulfillment his promises. He strikes the final blow on Egypt. So devastating that Pharaoh drives the Israelites out of the land in great haste. And the Egyptians gladly hand over their wealth to the Hebrews as they depart. And this is a promise that God made with specificity way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that God would deliver his people with great judgments and with great possessions. It's all happening exactly as God has said it would. Not one dog barked. Not one son of Israel died. All were spared. All redeemed. All who sheltered themselves in faith under the blood of the Lamb. Now, I've mentioned this, and I, I pray I never gloss over this with us. How unsettling a scripture like this can be. We don't whistle past scriptures like this. Y'all, to see God's judgment come down so sharply and so absolutely, it's meant to take our breath away. It should. And when we recognize the distinction God makes that Israel is not off the hook because they are good. They are just as sinful in the end as the Egyptians. They are just as worthy of judgment in the end, and so are we. That's not what makes the distinction. And so as we close, and I pray as we tremble at the thought of such a righteous and holy God, I hope that we're even more stunned, that we're even more short of breath, when we consider the cross of Christ, the Son of God made man was utterly perfect and pure. Jesus is the only person who has ever lived who never once sinned, who never had to apologize for a word spoken out of turn, who never had to come back and ask forgiveness for harm he had done, who never even thought the thought itself that would be considered a sin in secret. Jesus is the only man who ever lived who deserved praise and worship and blessing with no fault found in him. 
We deserve judgment. He did not. And yet, look at how he came. He came as God's lamb. He came for the express purpose of suffering and dying in our place. He came to bear upon himself all the condemnation that a world of sinners earned and deserves so that we might freely receive mercy in place of judgment. That should take our breath away. Who can stand before a God who sees all and judges perfectly? Only those who shelter under the blood of the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And y'all, should the whole world collapse around us, should all of our safety measures and cushions fail us, we would still be entirely safe and secure in the end because we are sheltered under the blood of a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who has made us His own by His grace. Y'all, I want to encourage us this morning that God would, would bring us to a place of response. And, and as we've been doing week by week, we're going to offer a time and an opportunity to respond. I'll, I'll ask uh, in a moment for Aaron and Evan, our pastors, to stand at the back of the room by the doors. And during the prayer, during the song, if, if you'd like to be prayed for, if you'd like to talk, then our pastors are, are here for that purpose. If you'd like to know what it is to have faith, um, to know Christ and to be saved, uh, that's our greatest joy of all, to, to help shepherd you through that. But if anything that God is doing in your heart, if any need, if any uh, darkness or, or struggle uh, is concerning you, we're here for you. I want you to know that. You can respond by taking us uh, by the hand, letting us pray. But all of us should respond in some way or another. When we stand and sing, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Our plea, our need, is strong. His grace fulfills the greatest need we have, our sin. We are not under judgment. We are granted mercy. We respond with joy because Jesus has loved us and given himself for us. And so I want to invite us to pray, to thank God for all that he's done in his son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I do ask this morning for me, for us. Lord, for a, I pray, I do pray for a healthy amount of trembling and fear. Um, that, that, that has its proper place in our, in our hearts and our lives. If we have a clear eye for who we really are, for the sins, Lord, uh, that, uh, that we have committed in the past, for, for the sins, Lord, of this morning, for the sins we have planned, that you would help us to recognize that in the pure and bright light of your holiness, we do not stand on our own. We will not. Or we face only righteous judgment, and we will have no argument. We put our hand over our mouth. But Lord, I pray that, that as we recognize the, the depth and the extent and the right penalty for our sin, that we would abound with, with joy and with amazement 
when we consider, Lord, what you've done, how you have provided the sacrifice of your lamb, your son, a sacrifice which you have accepted on our behalf as perfect and entirely sufficient, both now and forever. Jesus Christ, who bore our sins in his body. Our Passover has been sacrificed. Our lamb has been given for us. And so, Lord, even as we recognize the depth of our sin and the greatness of your holiness, Lord, I pray in, in in a very real and precious sense that we would not fear. We certainly don't stand in fear of judgment any longer because we have passed out of death and into life by faith in Jesus Christ. We will not come into judgment for our judgment has already been satisfied at the cross. And Lord, I pray this morning for us as if, if we can even begin to take these things in that we would be humbled to the ground and lifted to the sky knowing that we are unworthy and yet knowing how deeply and how greatly you've loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, let this be something that I pray we not just, we we never take this as a token belief, but that this truth, this Savior, this Redeemer that we've been given, that we now know and call our brother and our friend, that this Savior Jesus Christ would consume our hearts, that he would consume our desires, that we would want nothing in this world more than him, and that, Lord, we would feel entirely secure because of him. What can man do to me if I belong to Jesus Christ? Then nothing can separate me from your love. Father, let us, I pray, internalize that wonderful truth because we know him by faith. We are redeemed forever because of the shedding of his blood, the blood of the lamb, under which we take perfect shelter. We thank you and praise you in the name of our awesome Savior. Amen.